Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. This is Rigor, and you're listening to The East Meets the West with my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. What's new, Pat? Oh, not a whole lot. Just, uh, you know, very interested to talk about these two films today because uh, I think I might uh, surprise you with some of my uh, thoughts on these. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested. You know, there, there's, some, there's some nice trivia behind some of these things and uh, definitely some good moments. But yeah, it's it's been it's been crazy. I've been dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of crazy weather out this way. You know, it'll be sixty in the morning and like sixty all day, and then all of a sudden the next day it'll be ninety, and we'll have huge thunderstorms and flooding. And yeah, we had the the hurricane come up, or the tropical depression or storm or whatever the hell it was, come up the coast. And uh, I was almost in your neck of the woods the other day. I w- on a movie shoot. I was almost in Maine. That's how oh, far wow. away in. Uh, I was like 10 minutes from Maine in New Hampshire. Oh, wow. oh that's awesome. What town? Dover? Uh, Portsmouth? Wherever Odeorn State Park is. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I uh, should probably know that considering I had to drive up there. <laughs> <laughs> I just put Odeorn State Park into the, the GPS. Well, how, how far off of 95 did you go? Uh, like 10 minutes, 30 minutes? I was pretty far up 495. Uh, up 95. Like, it... Uh, I saw a sign that said Maine, you know, 12 so, yeah. miles, 10 minutes or something. So you had to be in Portsmouth, in the Portsmouth area. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty pretty far along. Yeah, yeah. Like, for me, that's close, because my kids still live in Saugus, which is about an hour and 15 from here, and, you know, at this point, it's like nothing. I just get in the car, and all of a sudden, I'm there. I'm like, whoa, where the hell did time go? <laughs> yeah, my only issue is, like, this was close to two hours from where I live. Right, because be you're south of Boston, right? Yeah. I yeah. had to be there at 9 a.m. Oh, jeez. So, and we had, 
gathering with some of our friends the night before, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll, we won't stay all night. We'll leave at, like, 9.30, but then, like, you realize you haven't seen people in 15 months, and you're just like, I don't want to go, but it's like, I also have to be up in, like, 20 minutes, so... <laughs> I did come oh, home man. and take a nap, though, because I was like, yeah, that's happening. That's happening. That's funny. We didn't have quite the weather you had. I mean, we've had rain nonstop for like two weeks, but it's been in the 80s, continuously raining with the occasional thunderstorm, which bums me out because the thunderstorms always come when I'm not at a moment where I can just stop and watch a scary movie, which I love to do in a thunderstorm. Um, and then finally, yesterday, this yellow thing appeared in the sky, and my wife and I was like, ooh, what is that? What did we do wrong? You know, <laughs> what is that big yellow thing casting light over everything? Yeah, it's like, what the hell is that? Right. Oh, I, un I understand now why the ancients prayed to this thing. Right. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, yeah, I've been pretty much busy plugging away at the podcast. Got, got some family drama going on here, but I'm not going to get into that on the show. But um, so we did our primer episodes and uh, yep. which ended up being a two parter. And part one is, well, as of this recording, part one's going to um, air in a day or so. And then um, uh, we took a, a departure from our usual track to do a special show with Monster Kid radio host Derek M. Cook. But today, we are back on track, and we're continuing with the Shaw Brothers Venom Mob movies. Um, and it's the film called The Rebel Intruders from 1980, and the spaghetti western Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die from 1968. <laughs> You all should know by now. General Lin's claiming more and more land, winning battles. Refugees are swarming in by the hundreds. That's why Colonel Cheng's been sent to take command. Intruders, a.k.a. Killer Army, from 1980, takes place in a China that's torn apart by a vicious and brutal civil war which threatens the stability of the land. Towns are now under the rule of a few ruthless gangs presided over by embittered, power-hungry generals. Most of the people fleeing war-torn areas have become starving refugees that are flooding from one town to the next. Lu Feng is placed in charge of one town, and beneath him he has three men who are responsible for various sections of it. Sun Qin's one of these guys who has a ridiculously, if not laughable, high voice, but he seems the most good-hearted, refusing to allow his men to beat the starving refugees. Another of Lu Feng's co-bosses, Chang, is a big guy. Now, he's the one who played the, uh, the, the character that carried the big hammer in Shaolin Rescuers, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. Um, he employs a legion of fighters who carry, for some inexplicable reason, metal fists to fight with. Another of the co-bosses... All I could think of was Hulk hands. Right, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> or thing hands. Sometimes you could get the thing hands. My sister had those. <laughs> oh, it was unbelievable. All I think was like, oh, look at this. I'm gonna, I'll show you. Give me my Hulk hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> 
Another of the co-bosses has a group of sword carriers. And finally, Lu Feng's men carry spears, as does the man himself. Lu Feng sends these guys out to rule the city and generally terrorize and murder the refugees. Now, we get a rather long scene where the refugees are mercilessly tortured and abused. But if you got a few bucks on you, they, uh, they might consider stopping. And, Especially uh, if it's in your shoe. Right. <laughs> Well, the torch is so severe, uh, uh, there's a certain point where you're wondering, well, when the hell is Philip Kwok going to show up and save these goddamn people? Mm-hmm. So, after an excessive amount of refugee torturing, into town wanders a new refugee, Wang Su, played, of course, by Philip Kwok himself. Finally, I remember, I think I actually said that out loud when he showed up in the movie. And he gets into a scuffle when he's caught stealing food to stifle his hunger. It's here that we learn that he can effortlessly leap 20 feet into the air. He escapes into a brothel, ho ho ho, sneaking into the owner's room. She flirts with him and gives him a job as a doorman. And in a weird moment, the woman asks Quack to brush her hair. He thrusts his fist in her face and says, Listen, I'm a male chauvinist pig. Do it yourself. So the yeah, two- that <laughs> threw me off in a huge way. Like, wait a minute, what? Like, there's got to be some sort of translation problem here because... Those actions and those words, like, don't match the situation, like, at all. Brush my hair. No, I'll punch you. Like, what? I I think it had to be, because I remember at the time that that was kind of a big deal, the male chauvinist pig and all this talk about it. So I wonder if in the American translation they just, they had to throw it in there just because it was a sign of the times. I don't think that was, I, I think that was just in the Americanized version. I that's what I mean. Shocked if it was, yeah, in the Chinese version. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't like think maybe in the she propositioned thing. him, and he's like, "Oh no, I am saving myself for marriage." Right. Because <laughs> it didn't even make sense. So you're a male chauvinist, but I, I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. Anyways, the two trade a series of bizarre flirtations slash threats through the rest of the film. So I guess we're supposed to believe that this lady pines for uh, Philip Kwok, but there's never any reason why or really any follow-through on that subplot. Because they're both, they're, they're both attractive leads. Right. <laughs> like, what we other don't need reason to waste do you time. need? Right, we don't need to waste time with a, a romantic subplot. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lo Meng, another refugee, stumbles through a downpour and seeks shelter outside of Chang's, the, you know, the big guy, his school. Chang's students pick a fight, and of course Lo Meng beats the shit out of them. And uh, Chang invites Lo inside for a spar. Here, Chang pulls out a pair of comically large boxing gloves, a.k.a. the Hulk gloves we talked about, which are made of metal, and he spars with Lo, Lo Meng and then offers him a job. Now, in another part of the city, Chang Shang steals food, and then he ends up feeding fellow refugees. And he's spotted by some men, and after a quick fight, Sun Chan comes onto the scene. He offers Chiang a job on the spot in a casino that Sun Chan owns. Now, both Lo and Kwok end up in the casino and soon discover how Chiang works players against each other, hoping to score a tip from the winners, which I thought was actually very clever. Um, this leads to an epic brawl with Lo, Kwok, and Chiang taking each other on. Lo and Kwok finally realize that they're from the same town, they know each other's kung fu teachers, so they call off the fight and go out with Chiang to get drunk. Chang Che, the director, inserts a sort of an inside joke in this scene, 
Um, and it's the part where Lomeng easily knocks down a practitioner of the snake style, um, which was popularized by the five deadly venoms. So that was sort of a, an inside joke, I guess. The three decide to become blood brothers, biting their thumbs, because apparently their teeth are either ridiculously sharp or their skin is paper thin, and they draw blood pretty easily. Uh, they pour the blood into a tea, which they take turns drinking. After this, the three go through a few misadventures until about an hour into the movie when the plot kicks in, and Lu Fang's subordinates kill the ambassador of a rival general and blame the three brothers, turning them into scapegoats. Now, our three heroes learn of this plan, however, and so begins one protracted fight scene that sees the three heroes go from one end of the city to the next because the majority of the town has turned on them. Their only option is to call on their few friendships for help. However, some who profess to be allies, and I'm talking to you, Sun Chen. Yeah, I'm talking to you. They soon yeah, he prove... was a dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> soon prove to have their own hidden agendas and force the innocent guys into even more danger. Now, the wronged men must attempt to escape the town by boat to provinces in the south with the evil Lu Feng in hot pursuit. So, Patsy, first impressions on this one. Well, you know, it uh, it checked all the boxes for me. Um, <laughs> you know, we had, you know, like we've we've been saying, you know, every pretty much every movie, like they introduce a new type of weapon that they're fighting with. In this case, uh, it's both Hulk hands and a bench, because the bench was used twice. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you're able to cut somebody's leg off with a bench. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> it uh, had someone mostly dead with severe wounds delivering a little bit of exposition right before they die. Uh, <laughs> and also, like, a dummy being thrown. What? Like, right when, uh, what's his name, at the at the very end, when he's like, stop, it's a trap! And, like, he's yeah. all, like, stabbed and dead, and, like, the the bad guys throw him. Like, it's very <laughs> clearly, like, a dummy that they're throwing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> also, um, uh, Lo Meng using uh, a, a great feat of strength where he throws that whole, um, like that display down, like the, the whole, um, oh, the message the, board there, or whatever. Yeah, when the guys yeah. are chasing him with spears and he just like pulls the entire like advertising display down and like right. uses it to block and run away. Yeah. I will say though, like you're saying, you know, an, an hour in when the plot kicks in, um, some of the fight scenes at the beginning were very lackluster. Like you could tell yeah. by the camera angles that these guys weren't even coming close to hitting each other. It wasn't convincing at all. Uh, even some of the choreography at the end, like there's one part where um, Philip Kwok is fighting the guy with the two swords there. And you can tell like, and they're doing a slow motion uh, scene and they're both like holding back where they could have and rightly should have hit each other. Right. So it's like, maybe don't use that angle in slow motion for that particular scene because it looks terrible. So like, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't my fate. I found it very boring for a lot of it. Cause Ooh. a lot of it, like, like what you were saying, it's like, Oh, let's bite our thumbs and drink this blood tea. Cause <laughs> then we can be brothers. It's like, I guess, like, yeah. And I was thinking, do they have a knife? Did? Right. 
Well, everybody had knives everywhere. Like, no, that's true. And that's the thing. Like, where? how did he not, like, oh, let me bite my thumb. It's like, that's, you know, like, if you're Shakespeare, that's a sign of disrespect. Yeah. <laughs> he bit yeah, his I, thumb I, at me. I wasn't, uh... Wasn't a huge fan of of this particular one, but it did have some some fun fight scenes, and I mean, I liked some of the weapons. I do like the three section staff. Yes, uh, that's yeah. one of my favorite weapons to see people use. Um, Which is funny because so, I just thought it was like a triple nunchuck until I did my research, and oh, it's a three section staff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a very difficult weapon to master um, because it like moves so much, but it's so versatile. Yeah. Like, you can use it against, you know, swords, against spears, against, you know, other, like, you know, long-reach weapons, because it's a, it's a longer-reach weapon, but it's also a close-quarters weapon, right, depending right. on how you're holding it. So it's, it's one of my favorite. Well, I never trained with that one, because I was very confident that I would whack myself uh, simultaneously <laughs> in the back of the head and right in the balls <laughs> if I were to try to use it. Um <laughs> I was a hundred percent sure of that, so I never, I never worked with that one. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah, I, I have a slightly different opinion. I enjoyed this movie, I, but I can see, yeah, you know, like, like I said, the, the plot took a while to kick in. I think for me, it was just, I was just enjoying watching these guys together again, and um, I was pissed off at Sun Chan for being a dick and kind of turning traitor because he was so nice. He did not want to hurt the refugees, and I thought, oh, great. He's going to be the one to step in and help them. And, you know, maybe that was the non-purpose plot twist just to throw us off. But Yeah, I mean, I mean that was that was good because he, he generally is, like, a good guy and, like, on the side of good. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, Lu Fang is just going to be a bad guy. Like, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't like the mustaches on some of these guys. Some of these guys look like teenagers trying to grow mustaches and, like, <laughs> had a hard time doing it. It's like, you well, know what? We'll just put a fake one on. Are you talking about, like, Wong Lick, who was, um, he was the dude that wore black and all his guys wore black and they had swords? Yeah, the guy who, uh, the one I was just talking about fighting uh, uh, Lo Meng at yes. the end. Yeah. Yeah, his mustache looked awful. Yeah. <laughs> it made me think of the, uh, the the Superman the movie story where Gene Hackman comes in and Richard Donner's like you need to shave your mustache he's like all right, right I'll shave my mustache if you shave yours and so they they shave it off and he's like all right your turn and Richard Donner just pulled off his fake mustache yeah <laughs> I love that story uh, I mean that's really what it seemed like was going to be like yeah this isn't a real mustache right I can just pull this off at any time. <laughs> Um, yeah, that actor Wong Lick, he was in the last four Venoms films that we covered. He was in Shaolin Rescuers, The Daredevils, mm -hmm. Magnificent Ruffi Ruffians, and Two Champions of Shaolin. I thought he was appropriately douchey here. And he, he was a great fighter, though, especially in that end scene when he's going up against, uh, I think it was Philip Kwok, right? Oh, maybe it was Lo Meng. I can't remember now. I think they they took turns. I'm trying to remember. Who had the... Uh... Who had the three section? It was Philip Clark had the three section staff. Right, and then uh, Chiang Sheng had the sword and the shield that he stole from one of the bad guys. But the, but yeah. Wong Lick was the guy, the bad guy in black with the mustache, and all his men were in black, and they all had swords. Yeah, and the, like that was like that's how he looks in like like the last couple of movies. Like, right. If you look at his IMDb page, like that's 
that's the same outfit he's wearing, except he has a hat. Right. So, <laughs> like, it's the it's the same outfit, and it's like, nope, I have a very specific style. This is how I'm going to dress. This is what I'm going to, this is, you know, the colors I'm going to wear, and bring me my fake mustache. Right. He has it in, like, a crystal case. <laughs> Oh, man. And then we mentioned Sun Chien, who ends up being a, a traitor. Now, did I feel like I missed something. Did they explain why he turned out to be a bad guy? Or was he just like, ha-ha, I'm, I'm not what you think? Or... I think he was just trying to take advantage of the situation and make money. Oh, okay. And it didn't work out, because, again, he got his leg cut off with a bench. Right. Um, <laughs> and then got his, like, windpipe crushed. He didn't put up as much of a fight as I was kind of hoping. Like, it was very quick. A lot of these fights were fairly quick. Right. And I wanted to throw out how I was, uh, I forgot one of the other new weapons, like the uh, the double dutch attack with the uh, jump ropes, yeah. which, <laughs> while showing off some uh, some sweet acrobatic moves, like... It's like, yeah, jump rope, like... Chang Chang had a sword. uh, Were you not just screaming at the screen going, why doesn't he just cut the ropes with a sword? That's what I was waiting for. I was like, why doesn't he cut the rope? Why does he, like, you have a sword, cut the rope. Don't stop jumping, just cut the rope. Stop jumping, just cut the rope. Or kick one of those guys, and then the rope becomes useless, because apparently they need two guys to operate each rope. Right. And it's (laughs) like, what are you doing? And it's like, to me... The the ropes are a, a step slightly lower than the flags. Yeah. That's that's where I'm at with those ropes. I was like, this is dumb. Like the only shot that you had was the fact that there was like six guys, so there was three ropes, or maybe there was eight guys with four ropes. I don't know. It got it got ridiculous. I'm like what are we doing here? And one of the Why guys we... I, I couldn't tell if it was Chang Sheng or a Philip Kwok that got um, the ropes were wrapped around their hands and legs, and they were pulled. And it was actually the actor, because you could tell, because they were doing this sort of top-down camera view of them pulling him and then spinning him and flipping him. And then, I, but I didn't, I couldn't tell. I watched it twice, and I couldn't tell which was which. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a lot of like really fast movements with that. So it was hard to keep track of who was doing what. Yeah. A lot of times, the only way you can tell who is who, because of how fast these fight scenes go, is like take a note of who has what weapon at the beginning, and right. just kind of follow the follow yeah. the weapon. Yeah. So, now one thing that was interesting, and if you recall on our uh, Primer episode, um, one of the guys that was on the show mentioned that uh, director Chang Che was kind of sleeping through his movies. And I, I think I know why, or at least um, I know a reason why it was covered up, was because on this film, for example, we had Philip Kwok, Chiang Sheng, and Lu Feng, and they were all martial arts directors on this. So I think when it came to the fight scenes, he just, you know, the director just took a took a nap, and they all choreographed the fight scene and, and directed that, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that, the um, the whole thing with them is this was very evident that he was sleeping. Yeah. Like, <laughs> because, like I said, the uh, the scenes, the, like some of the fight scenes were 
shot very poorly, and some of the scenes were. It was very evident, like I said, you know, the the the, the fight at the end, uh, that one guy could have hit the other guy, and clearly didn't. Um, even the fight at the end with uh, Lomang and um, I mean, sorry, Philip Kwok and uh, and uh, Lu Fang. Lu Fang, yeah, sorry. Uh, I was like totally blanking on his name. <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, when he was hitting him with the three three uh, section staff, it's like you could tell like he was really like just tapping him on the back. Yeah. Like there was no fluidity to the motion. Like he definitely slowed down. It was just like, there you go. There's a little little nudge. There yeah. you go. Got <laughs> you. Like. <laughs> And what was with the spears that were all of a sudden made out of rubber? Oh, because it's that was um, again with a uh, uh, Lu Fang. Uh, remember what I was saying? Like when you when you're really good at using uh, like a spear, like a, a longer range weapon. Yeah. Like, it looks like it's kind of made of rubber as you're spinning it around and, like, using it. Like, and that's what was happening when he was, use, when he was using his uh, right his spear. The other one, I think, was just done to show off uh, Lomang's strength. But it wasn't even just like, him. Ah, his, his men were, like, bending the spears, and you, it was making this rubber creaking sound, this... <laughs> yeah, that, I think, they maybe thought it was funny because they bent... They bent like the four spears all at once. Yeah, <laughs> and then they popped back up and and killed uh, Shang Shang. Oh yeah, oh, Lomang. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they they killed him, and it's just like it's kind of like playing on that because like it's like yeah, you know, when you're using this spear, you know, like I said, the same thing with like a hockey stick. Like the more flex, the more power is in there. Right. Um. Because you wouldn't, like, if you were to try to take it and bend it, like, you're not going to move it much. But if you're doing all these different motions that are very fluid, like, you can see it, like, it it's almost looks like they're made of rubber when when they're being used by someone who knows what they're doing with them. Yeah. It was just irritating me because they were doing it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys, like, were bending the, the spears. And I almost took it as, you know, the actors, the stuntmen, they've just felt like, well, we're getting our asses kicked here and these are prop. Spears, anyways, let's use it to our advantage. <laughs> so they just bend them and flick them at the guys. Yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, we're suddenly going to go, like, oh, crap, we just realized that we haven't put any charm or or comedy into this like we normally do. What if we did it now during the final fight? Right, right. Like, no, no, <laughs> that's, it's out of place here. It almost gets back to the whole Chang Che thing where it was up to the, you know, the martial arts coordinators, those three, to kind of go, oh, shit, we got to do something to save this film. And so, all right, we'll in inject some humor into the last third, and it just didn't work, you know. Yeah, it's it's a little nutty. Um, well, even Sun Chen, he only gets one fight scene. Lu Fang only gets the um, couple fight scenes at the end there as the final boss. Um, so that we do, you know, even though I thought, um, what was cool was that Chiang Chang got to kill a lot of people in this cause we don't really see him killing people. Yeah. It was a little disappointing on a few levels. I have to say, 
Um, now, one source I read about the film theorized that the film took place in the early 1900s because none of the characters have the wigs or the, the long hair, or the pigtails that they are normally associated with the historical epics. And so it's not set during the Qing Empire or uh, the distant past. But, you know, for the first time, we kind of get to see all of their real hair as they all are not wearing wigs or ponytails. So I thought that was interesting. You also notice they uh, they didn't have like the big huge uh, sideburns either, right? Right, exactly. But their costumes were the type that we usually see in movies set during the eighteen hundreds. So I thought I thought that was an interesting uh, kind of a juxtaposition there. Yeah, I, I like I generally like the way they uh, they costume the uh, the various characters because it, it, like you said, it does get to the the. Um, the styles of the different eras and you can kind of tell when when the films are taking place based on like how guys are dressed and like what their their hair hairstyles are you know as opposed to trying to guess you know the uh the technology of the time right there was one funny scene where Chang shanks was um jumped up onto the gambling table and was spinning on his head i thought that was kind of funny oh yeah that was fun it's kind of like break dancing, it was like oh right? a break dance fight yeah. yes they're break dance fighting <laughs> But yeah, like you mentioned before, Philip Kwok did a lot of stool foo, as I call it, in this movie. Now, did he always have the um, the, the three-segmented uh, pole with him, or was that only when the, the chick from the uh, whorehouse gave it to him? He had it at the beginning, and he gave it to the, the, the madam there. I was oh, like, right. only give it back to us if we're in trouble. That's right, and then she gave it back to him. Okay, I forgot about that element. Yeah, that, that weird ceremony they did to cement their brotherly bond, uh, I, I kind of found it interesting when I first watched it, but uh, we haven't really seen anything like that so far in these films that we've covered, but it, it did seem a little out of place. All they had to do was, like, one of them pulls out a knife, and then you cut. And, you know, we all get that you're making a blood brother pact, you know? Yeah, well, you know, given the state of the world the last uh, 15 months, that's not... Uh... That's not something that I would even entertain at this point. <laughs> it's like I saw a, uh, like a meme that was going around. It's like, oh, remember when you used to let people just blow all over the food that we were going to eat on our birthday? Like, right. just blow all over a cake? <laughs> like, we lived a wild lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, speaking of wild like, lifestyle, yeah, though, Lo Meng did kill a guy with a handful of chopsticks. So I was thinking of you when I saw that. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know he's got to do something like that, you know, like yeah. show him show him what's up. You know, Lo Meng is is you know I I I always look at him like you know because we always match these up. Uh, he reminds me a lot of uh, Bud Spencer. He's like a, an analog to Bud Spencer. He's always showing off his his massive strength. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd mentioned it would have been cool to see a movie where the two of them and fight each other and then end up teaming up. You know. Oh yeah, they'd start to fight, and then they they both go and like, the fight would probably start over who could eat and drink the most. Right. <laughs> and it'd be like two days later, and they're still going at it, and everyone else is passed out on the floor. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's funny? You were talking about the directing, and and um, I noticed that the camera work was kind of inconsistent because like there were certain scenes where the camera would get really swimmy especially towards the end, for, like, no reason. Usually you do that if someone's drugged or they get hit in the head or something. But 
it just I didn't get why they were doing that. And then they did quite a few uh, bird's eye views where we were looking down at what was going on. And then uh, the other thing I noticed too was like you're always you know um, noticing that these movies don't have a lot of cuts in the fight sequences. And this one did. There were quite a few cuts actually that I noticed. Yeah, I uh, I noticed that, and I was going to bring that up because I was like, wait a minute. Like, I don't know if, like, I, looking at the IMDb, there's one uh, cinematographer, but yeah. it's like, it seems like there was like four different people all operating their own cameras. It's like a band I went to see once. They were just like the absolute worst band. It's like. <laughs> The the lead guitar, the rhythm guitar, the bass player, and the drummer were all playing different songs. And this quote-unquote singer, I leave that in quotes, because it <laughs> sounded like... You know, if you if you turn your, your engine on in your car, and then you turn the key again while it's on? Oh, yeah. Like that horrible screeching sound? That's kind of what he sounded like, <laughs> but not quite as melodic. Oh, my God. Uh, the band is called Chelsea Grin. I don't care if they hear this because they're awful. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they're actually named after, uh, you know, the scars that the Joker has? The scars that who has? Uh, the Joker. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, like the, the forced smile. Yeah. That's what a Chelsea Grin is. It's also uh, known as a Glasgow smile. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's what they named themselves after. So super cool. Um it's the the worst thing I've ever seen, and I've accidentally seen them twice because I opened up for bands I actually wanted to see. But it was almost <laughs> like that's how the the approach to directing this film was. It's like, all right, we have a cinematographer, a director of photography, a director. Uh, they're all going to film whatever they want, whenever they want. Like, oh, did you find the storyboards? What storyboards? <laughs> like, you know, we, we took the storyboards, we shuffled them up because for some reason they were drawn onto the back of, you know, these three by five uh, cards and we thought they were just like a deck of playing cards so we kind of shuffled them all up and that's how we shot the, these different shots. <laughs> oh, I'm going to do some drone shots. Well, drones haven't been invented yet and I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Well, I'm still going to do them. Oh, man. Like, Oh, man. Is that is that gonna make the uh, is that gonna make the fight scenes look good? Oh, it's gonna make the fight scenes look like shit. It's gonna be terrible. Yeah, no, it's gonna be awful. Well, why are you gonna do that? I'm going in a different direction. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I subverting your expectations. You expect to see a good movie, and you're gonna see just awful. You know what? Everybody's got Hulk hands too. <laughs> Everybody's got Hulk hands. Look at that. With the Hulk hands, they can punch through metal. Oh, uh, Philip Kwok can punch through metal without Hulk hands. Right. <laughs> oh, how about that? You know what? He's going to kill a guy with a bench. You know what? Make it two. He's going to kill two guys with benches. And one of the guys is going to get his leg cut off. Oh, with a sword? No, with a bench. What are you, stupid? <laughs> no, I have to go back and look at that because I swear I thought it was Chiang Shang that cut the guy's leg off with his sword when he stole the sword from the bad guys. See, I, I I may have missed it, but it 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 I thought he like used the bench as leverage and snapped his leg off. <laughs> Use I mean, either the way, bench, it's Luke. ridiculous. Yeah. Use the either bench. way, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's like, oh yeah, I killed a bunch of dudes. Oh, what'd you use? Like your 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 three section staff, a sword, a spear. 
you know, maybe some poison. Nah, I used a bench. I was sitting on it, and then uh, <laughs> I, I just attacked. killed some guys with it. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I just killed some guys with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, mean, you know. I did like, though, in the showcase showdown where it was down to Phil Kwok and Chiang Shang again against Lu Fang. I do love when they do that. Um you know, uh, Chiang Shang ends up defeating the guys he was fighting. It was weird because Lu Feng's fighting him, and then he sees Phil Kwok, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go fight him. And he runs off, and then uh, Lu Feng defeats, uh, you know, a bunch of the guys, and then they all kind of, the three of them jump in together. Yeah, it's so weird. It's just like, oh, wait. Again, which leads me to believe that, like, people weren't doing... Like, everybody was doing their own thing when it came to fight choreography, and Chang Shea was just having a little nap. Right. <laughs> and, oh, he's sleeping quick. Let's all do our wacky fight scene that we invented. Yep, yeah, right. Oh, and I'll do my crazy cinematography. You can't and, do cinematography like that. Oh, that sounds like a challenge to me. <laughs> and there was two things that stood out to me. Well, actually, well, I guess they kind of stood out to me, but the one, the main one was... When Philip Kwok wraps his three-segmented staff around uh, Lo Meng's neck and strangles him to death, he didn't really kill him. He knocked him unconscious. You know, in order to See, kill someone, you have to keep applying. Oh, he snapped the neck. Okay, all right. I didn't get that out of it. That's what I thought. Because that's a common mistake in movies is that they strangle someone until they pass out and you assume they're dead. But in real life, that's not how it works. You've got to continue strangling them while they're unconscious until they no longer breathe. Yeah, otherwise it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything. Right, right. Um, but the other one was, and I swear I have to go back and look at this. But did we not catch one, maybe two glimpses of Lo Mang's guts kind of falling out of his wound there when he got stabbed in the stomach? I didn't notice, but I swear you know, there was on a, the first there, time we saw his guts kind of like slipping out. I mean, it wouldn't, it's probably, uh, like, blood packs and stuff, like, that are supposed to be his guts that he's just kind of holding. Kind of like the very end of uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where Charlton Heston gets shot, and he's very clearly holding a blood pack to his chest. Right. Like, it's, I was like, did he get... Is his heart in his hand? Because he's definitely holding, like, a bag of blood against his chest. Like, oh, I've been shot, and I'm going to put my hand on the wound. Nope, <laughs> I've definitely got, like, a big handful of blood pack. I mean, it, in certain cases, like, that's fine, especially, you know, if you're on a lower budget. It's like, all right, let's fill up, like, these tubes, you know, like these longer like a sock or something or a sleeve and, you know, kind of twist it a little bit and have that full of blood and you're going to squeeze that so it looks like guts. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I may be wrong. I'm just, that's how I would do it. Go back and look at that at some point. Whoopsies. Um, yeah, because it just, I, for a split second, I was like, wait a minute, we just saw his guts, but who knows. So, yeah, you know, now that we talk about it, <laughs> I guess I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. It was just kind of fun to get back into a Venom film. Um, but, yeah, I think... Well, I didn't mean to ruin it for you. No, no, not at all. But all the <laughs> stuff you pointed out, you're, I'm like, oh, shit, he's right. You're right. Um, but I, I don't think it was a bad movie. I think there was a lot of problems with it, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. 
Um, what are your final thoughts on it? Well, you know, looking at the plot, if you look at the, the Wikipedia plot, and it's like they join forces with the local rebel leaders to escape to the south before getting into trouble with Lu Fang, who is out to exterminate all rebels. Like, we only get to see one side of this. We don't get to see the other side. Like, are we rooting for the bad guys? Right. Who knows? Like, we don't know. You know, maybe Lu Fang was, you know, he was a, a, a tough but, you know, fair leader. And these guys are causing all sorts of problems. And it's like, we have to get rid of these guys. You know, if we have to kill hookers to do it, we'll kill hookers to do it. Like, that's fine. But um, There was one point, too, with um, uh, Philip Quark says, we'll, we'll go south and join the rebels, you know. So it like, you're already with the rebels. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if there was like in Star Wars, there was a actual rebel alliance or something. Well, and again, you know, if you want to use Star Wars as your as your basis for the rebels, it's like, yeah, they used fear to, you know, the Empire used fear to hold everything kind of together, hold the whole bureaucracy together. But how good was life for everyone while they were under the Empire? Like everything was regimented and, you know, trade was good. And, you know, there were trade routes. It's like, yeah, it kind of sucked. But like the bureaucracy was held in place. The rebels come in, destroy everything, and now you just set up chaos. It's like, all right, right we won. So how are you going to hold all of these systems together? Oh, pff, we're not. That's like, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like um, in, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Return of the Jedi. They didn't kill bad guys. They killed contractors who had families, you know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, like uh, from Clark's. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Those were contractors, man. So um, I actually found, I was able to make a screenshot, and I'm going to send it to you. Uh, let's see if I can do this real quick while we're on the air. I can always cut this part out. But I found the screenshot of Lomang getting stabbed. There's a cloth that somehow gets in between the spear, Lofeng's spear and Lomang. And it stabs him in the guts, and his guts start to pour out. And I'm I mean, gonna, it wouldn't surprise me if that's how they did it. I'm going to Facebook uh, Messenger you this. Boom. Let me know when you get it. When you gut it. Yeah, it definitely looks like it's uh, supposed to be guts. Yeah, it was like the spear goes in and then comes out, and then the guts come out with it. <laughs> I mean, that is, you know, what would happen. I mean, that's pretty good effects. <laughs> yeah. It just freaked me out at a glance, and I'm sorry I didn't get a chance beforehand to really, you know, get the screenshots there. But um, Well, that, we didn't know it was going to be coming up. I think that's the most like, gore. In conversation. Well, yeah, and I think that's the most gore that we've seen in a, in a, a Shaw Brothers, at least in a Venom movie. We've yeah, seen a lot we don't of see blood. A whole, a whole ton. We've seen a lot of blood, but no guts. Yeah, usually it's a guy getting, like, sliced across the, the chest or the stomach or the throat or something. Right. Or a, a limb chopped off here and there, but... Yeah, or, like, getting, you know, a warning tattooed into your back, you know, or carved into your back, and you're able to run 30 miles to be like, oh, they got me. <laughs> What'd you think of the final shot 
of the phony boats in the distance getting set on fire, apparently by Philip Kwok and Chiang Shang. I thought that was a, a pretty good. It's like, oh, if you set all the boats on fire, they can't follow you. And like, oh, no, all our boats are on fire. We right. can't follow him. <laughs> I thought the effect was decent. It was a practical effect, you know. I thought it was pretty funny. Like, smart, though. Like, yeah. set all their boats on fire. Yeah. So. All right. So that is our discussion of uh, the rebel intruders. Uh, rebel scum. So, um, you know, yeah, it meandered. But um, I did like the relationship between Kwok Shang and Lo Meng. You don't really get to see Lo Meng integrated into the group as often as, as, as we would like to. So I thought this was kind of cool for that aspect of it. Um, but, oh, actually, there was a moment where I thought when they had the noose around Lo Meng's neck, I thought for sure he was a goner. I'm like, oh, no, there's no way he's surviving this. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I didn't think he was going to die there. It's like, yeah, he, you know, if most of these, most of these movies have like a lot of characters die, but it's like, I didn't think he would die there. I thought he would die like fighting, you know, which is, you know, typically the way these guys go. It's like, ah, oh, you're tied up. Haha, <laughs> we'll get you. I mean, very rarely do you see somebody killed like, in a weak way like that, you know, getting the Boba Fett treatment. That's true. Yeah, they don't get just thrown into the Sarlacc pit. They uh, they get to go down fighting. <laughs> so, all right, cool. So that was, like I said, the Rebel Intruders. And uh, we're going to take a break. And then next up will be the Spaghetti Western, Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die, from 1968. Directed by Tonino Cervi and starring Brett Halsey and Bud Spencer. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit.
prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I don't have any feelings, except maybe hate. I guess you're looking for Otago. And he collected rebels, half-breeds, and deserters till he had the scum of the earth all together. That's a mighty powerful mob he's got there. I'll be looking for... for gunmen. I don't want to kill you because I'm the curious kind. I'm looking for men who know how to kill. Want to know what you have to do? $10,000 don't need any explanation. Well, maybe you know these guys? Sure I do, Marshal. That one there's Jeff Milton. Well, next to him is Francis Colt Moran. Then comes Bunny Fox. And last, but <laughs> sure is Hades not least, a Banyan. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go after them. There's 30 of them and two of us. We'll go on to Madigan and wait for the others. Well, look who's here. Bill Kiowa. Don't talk, shoot. Come on, Charles. 
I'd shoot to kill. So today we are pairing, uh, of course, our Shaw Brothers film with uh, the Spaghetti Western. Today we kill, tomorrow we die. Uh, translated directly from Italian, it's today it's me, tomorrow you. Uh, I think I prefer the uh, the other title better. And <laughs> yeah. This was referenced on The Simpsons once, and I, I wish I could remember which episode, but I know it was, uh, they were watching TV, and Phil Hartman did the, uh, I think it was Phil Hartman that did the uh, the intro, but it's like, today we kill, tomorrow we die. It was like, I just thought, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a funny parody name for something, but apparently it's a real, real Western. That's funny. So it's a very straightforward, uh, very straightforward plot. Wrongfully, excuse me, wrongfully convicted Bill Kiowa spends, spends his sentence planning revenge against the gang of Comancheros who murdered his wife and blamed him for it. Upon his release, he hires four specialist killers for his vengeance. And uh, one of the things we see at the very beginning is Bill Kiowa with his wooden pistol practicing drawing. And that's all he does all day, every day, for three years, and he draws in the new, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't call him a warden, but, like, some random dude that works in the jail is like, oh, my God, he's got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, uh, he spends his time, you know, kind of uh, preparing for vengeance because that's what you do when you are, you know, in a Western and you are wrongfully convicted of uh, killing your your wife. Did they say how many years? Three. Okay. Yeah, he was was in there uh, three years and every day. I mean, that seems a little low. Well, they say three, but in uh, according to SpaghettiWestern.net, he's released from prison after five years. Hmm. So, his nemesis, James El Fiego, is a leader of the Comancheros, a legion of army deserters and half-breed Indians. Oh, there's so much wrong with that sentence. Uh, <laughs> they're great fighters. So, Kiowa travels the land in search of five of the best gunfighters in Nevada. So, the first one is O'Banion, who is played by Bud Spencer, of course. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to him in a moment. <laughs> uh, Francis Colt Moran, who is... Uh, played by William Berger. Uh, Jeff Milton, who is played by Wade Preston. Sorry, I'm going back and forth between tabs here. And uh, Bunny Fox, who I thought was going to be like some sort of femme fatale with that name. Yeah. uh, Played by Franco Borelli, but uh, credited as Stanley Gordon. Same with uh, Brett Halsey, played Bill Kiowa, but he was credited as Montgomery Ford. Yeah, very close, almost the same. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bunny uh, Bunny Fox, uh, like I said, Stanley Gordon, but Franco Borelli. Uh, with his, quote, dirty five, Kiowa sets after the Comancheros to c- avenge a terrible wrong. So we know what they're, what he's, you know, what he's going after. And so... There's a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of stuff that I thought was very interesting. Like, I don't want to, you know, completely break it down, but, you know, obviously we can. Um, you know, they go from, he goes from town to town, and, like, you get to see a little bit of what each one of these guys can do, or at least what their reputation is for. I guess with Bunny Fox, when he finds him and he starts uh, offering, he offers everybody $10,000, 5000 up front, 5000 when the job is done. Right. Which at that time, $5,000 is like, I don't know, 100 grand today. Right. Like, yeah. that's insane. Yeah. Um, like, you could buy a horse for like $12. Right. And horses now, if you want a, a good horse, it's like half a million. Right. So, <laughs> you know, put that in perspective. Bunny Fox is uh, about to uh, hook up with a prostitute who is, seems a little old for him, but, you know, maybe that's that's what he goes for. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, you're definitely, uh, you're definitely my type. I was like, oh, wait, $5,000? Yeah, you're not my type anymore. $5,000 <laughs> is more my type. I mean, just think about, like, the type of hookers you could get for five grand back then. No kidding. Five $1 hookers, you know? <laughs> yeah. One $5,000 hooker or $5,001 hookers? Right. Um, <laughs> and when he, uh, when he tries to recruit Bud Spencer, Bud's getting ready to take a bath. And, like, that dude's weird. Like, the, the, the guy that was shaving him. Yeah. He had a gun on him, which he might have learned from... Uh, from uh, from uh, what's his name? Oh my God, Ringo, not Ringo. Oh, uh, the one we just talked about a couple episodes ago. Oh, what's my, his name? My is name that? is nobody. Henry Fonda. Yeah. 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 Um, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, he held his gun on him the whole time while he was being shaved. He's like, yeah, I just I don't trust anybody with a razor. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to go take a bath now. How much for a bath? I was like, oh, you can sit in here. And it's like this fancy bathtub. And it's like, there's no way that it's it's going to fit him. Right. So then they go into the next, like, stall over. And he's like, oh, this will do just fine. He starts getting undressed. And, like, the guy's kind of just still standing there. Yeah. He's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Trying to take a bath here. And then uh, Bill Kiowa comes in. And Bud Spencer just <laughs> escapes out the window <laughs> and runs off, but then comes back and finds him, you know, like a couple days later. Uh, I think my favorite thing that Bud Spencer did in this movie, because, again, he did have his, oh, a whole bunch of guys are going to pile on top of me and I'll just power out of it because that's like my signature move. Right. When somebody tripped him and knocked him down, one of the Comancheros. Yeah. He grabbed the guy's hand with, because he's like, oh, you spilled my whiskey. Pour me some more. And he's like, goes to do it. And he just like crushes the guy's hand while he's oh. holding the glass. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, that is the best thing I've seen him do in any of these movies. And I've, I've seen that somewhere. I've seen that somewhere else. I've seen uh, movies where people I... squeeze the glass in their own hand and cut their hands, but I've never, I don't know if I recall someone squeezing someone else's hand with a glass in their hand. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've seen that once. It might have been in a book, um, but I don't remember. Hmm. 
But yeah, that I had that in my notes because that was an amazing scene. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, there's also a scene where, like, you know, eventually these guys, you know, most of them get caught, and the guy's coming at them. The same guy that he, who, uh, whose hand he shredded, is coming at him with brass knuckles oh, yeah. with a blade on it. And in my notes, I wrote rapid cutting, finally good for something, because I kept going back and forth between the guy approaching him and his reaction and the guy approaching and his reaction. They just kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and making it faster and faster to kind of, um, you know, ratchet up the tension. Yeah. And, you know, he ends up breaking because he's Bud Spencer. He just breaks free and like rips the, he's tied to a chair. He just rips it open. And it's just like, Haha, I'm awesome. Um, that was awesome though. <laughs> and it, weren't you like rooting for him to just do that? Like you didn't think it yeah. at first and then you, Oh, he's going to fucking bust out. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like one of his signature moves. Like if, you know, it's like a, watching a uh, a Tom Cruise movie. If, like, he doesn't run or ride a motorcycle, you kind of feel ripped off. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the, the first scenes we get to see with Bill Keough is when he's getting out of prison and the warden's kind of giving him a pep talk. And he's like, oh, guys like you, we all, I tell you, I don't want to see you again, but no, we're always going to see you again. And uh, <laughs> he, he ends up... Um, going to get his gun, and Warden's like, oh, I can't give it that to you. No, that's against the rules. So he goes to a gun store, and, like, all these guys are like, oh, we're going to get you. And he's like, well, let me try these different guns. And he gets, like, three or four different guns, finds one he likes, and ends up killing all the bad guys with it. And then the proprietor's like, I'm going to have to get more of these. These are good guns. And, like, <laughs> that's the last time you see him. Right. But it's just, it's so funny. Now, I did not realize this screenplay was... Uh, by the, the, the director, Tonino Servi. Also, Dario Argento, yes. who is known for a lot of the Giallo films, you know, uh, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, uh, um, Suspiria, and... Oh, Tenebra. Yes. Just, just uh, tons of them. Tenebrae. Opera. The, the Sisters films, the three oh, yeah. sisters. Seven it was sisters. Just, uh, Inferno, um, Suspiria... And Tanabra, I think, are the three. Yes. Um, so this is definitely, like, much different than, you know, it's, it's definitely a, uh, a different thing that you would, that you would expect from um, somebody Argento. like Dario Argento. Well, this was early in his career, and apparently he wrote, like, three or four spaghetti westerns, and um, they're all very similar to The Magnificent Seven, as this one is. And one of the things I, I found out, and you know, because we've mentioned him on this show multiple times, because when you think of music in a spaghetti western, you think of Ennio Morricone. Right. Uh, I found out during some uh, uh, research for Throwdown Thursday that Ennio Morricone did the score for the Jaws ripoff film Orca the Killer Whale. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but it's like, it, yeah, like random bit of trivia, but it's like, holy shit, that's awesome. Um, 
I'll have to look and see yeah, if I, I have that because I know I have a whole bunch of Vennio Marconi's you know stuff on my computer somewhere. I'll have to dig that out. No, Ennio's just fucking amazing. <laughs> like so, I mean, some of the most like for me, it goes Ennio Morricone when it comes to like movie like soundtracks and things like that. You know, it's yeah, it's him, John Williams, Alan Silvestri, like those guys. Yeah, but if you're talking like guys contributing to a like a soundtrack, like writing songs for a specific soundtrack. Uh, nobody beats Kenny Loggins. Sorry. <laughs> That's true. That's true. If you're just talking instrumental scores, it's those three. Yeah. You know, maybe James Newton Howard. But oh, when it's songs written, you, you can't beat Kenny Loggins. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, man. There's, there's so many things that you mentioned here. I, I, are you, I don't want to interrupt if you're still doing the synopsis or... No, go ahead. go ahead. Okay. There was a whole bunch of things that you mentioned that I wanted to touch upon. And I'm going to start with this one because you totally cleared something up for me. Now, when I was looking on Wikipedia, is usually where I sort of take the, the list of the cast and um, start from there because it's just it, the way to cut and paste it, just easier for me. And um, the last name, I'm looking at it and it's like Troy McClure. And I'm like, oh, I'm Troy McClure. And I assumed it was a real guy. And it says Troy McClure as Slappy the Wagon Right. And then I looked it up, and I went, wait a minute. When I clicked on it, it took us to the Tory McClure character that Phil Hartman did. So when you just mentioned earlier that it was a Simpson refer- Simpsons reference about Today We Kill, I looked it up real quick. And in the show, in the episode Homer Alone, they mentioned the movie Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die, which is a film starring Troy McClure. And um, it, it's Troy McClure mentioned it during his video tour of Rancho Relaxo. <laughs> And it that's they, what it was. And they said that's a parody of Ojiame Domaniate, which is, as you said, today it's me, tomorrow it's you. So I thought it was just a big joke, which it still is in the Wikipedia that someone, you know, how Wikipedia is sort of encyclopedia by consensus. But um, so I thought someone was just being funny, and there is that's actually the Simpsons reference. So you kind of you kind of answered a question for me, <laughs> which is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I totally like when I as soon as you said this is what we're going to watch, I was like, oh, my God, like that's a Simpsons reference. And <laughs> I couldn't remember where it was fun. Where, I mean, where it was from. That's funny. And th- the reason I picked the film was because one of my hobbies, as you probably know, is I, I like to look through old newspaper movie ads and and I like to, you know, get um, JPEGs of of the old movie ads and post them on my uh, I have a Facebook page where I post them on. And um, I saw this ad when I was looking for something else, and I realized it was just Bud Spencer without Terrence Hill. And I was like, oh, we got to do this one next because, you know, we got to give Bud equal time. We did Terrence Hill without Bud, so let's do a Bud movie. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, There was a lot of uh, tropes in it, but, uh, you know, some comedy, and I thought it was a fun romp. And I keep forgetting to tell you, um, I reached out to Brett Halsey to be on the show who, of course, played Kiowa in this movie. And he basically got back to me, I think, like, uh, the day we were supposed to record the first time we had to postpone it, um, he said, he basically said he's literally done a ton of these interviews lately. He wants to take a break for a few months. So I told him I'd get back to him in January about getting him on the show. So that'll be fun if he comes on. Yeah, it'd be great. Because he was in tons of stuff. I mean, he was in The Godfather 3. Um... I remember him as Philippe in The Return of the Fly, and uh, he was in the 1989 version of The, Pla- the Black Cat, directed by Luigi Cozzi. 
He was uh, tons of TV shows like Knight Rider, Airwolf, Dukes of Hazard, Forever Night. Um, well, now, what's interesting is you had mentioned he went by the name Montgomery Ford, and uh, in an interview I read with him, he basically said he just did it for no good reason other than being ornery. <laughs> but what's funny is that, um, I think, is this the right one? Uh, I think Brett Halsey, in, in and of itself, is a pseudonym. So it was like he didn't want to be confused with being... Uh, I think I'm... Am I saying the right person? Or am I doing some someone else? I think that's the wrong person. So let me backtrack a second here. Um, but he changed it to Montgomery Ford, basically for no good reason other than being ornery. Um, and this film ended up being the second highest grossing film that year in Italy. And uh, suddenly Montgomery Ward was a movie star and impossible to kill off. So Halsey wound up using the name again in his next two spaghetti westerns, The Wrath of God in 68 and $20,000 for the Seven, also known as Kidnapping in 69. Hmm. Interesting. And this was the uh, directorial debut of uh, of Cervi. Cervi? Cervi? I'm not yeah, sure how to pronounce it's it. it's Cervi. And it's his one and only Spaghetti Western. Yeah, it was his. Uh, it was his first first film, and you know, having having Dario Argento be your co writer, like, oh you know, yeah, there's worse things to <laughs> worse things to happen to you. You know, let's just let's just you know talk about the stuff that we liked, because obviously you know the good guys win at the end, and you know, like you <laughs> said, it was very similar to uh, to uh, Magnificent Seven type thing, where you know a few overcome massive odds and end up winning, and right. You know, it works out really well for him. One thing I really liked about this movie is that all of the the team that he puts together. I, I, did you keep expecting a double cross? Because I did. I kept waiting for. Oh one. yeah. Because what's his name? The guy in the I was Austin Powers. For the guy outfit. that they met at the. I was waiting for the guy that he met at the beginning. That was like, yeah, I kept your money the whole time, and right here you go. And instead of giving him a, the, the briefcase that the money was in, he starts taking the money out and piling it on the table. Right. <laughs> I'm keeping this briefcase. This is my lucky briefcase. <laughs> I'm going to put a pin in that because I have a question about that guy. But I like the fact that they were, with the exception of, I think it was the, the gambler who was, um, he was dressed in the Austin Powers outfit. He kind of, once they let him out of jail or once they get him out of wherever he was, he pulls a gun on them and takes off. And then they find him again and get him on the team. They basically were all good guys. By the, you know, there was no, no one double-crossed each other within the team of, of good guy characters. And I really, I appreciated that because I'm tired of seeing, you know, when you've got this team and then I'll, one or two of the good guys turn out to be bad guys, like Sun Chan in the last movie. <laughs> my, my, I think my favorite thing about this movie is that, like, the guy who played El Fago is like, oh, I'm the leader of these Comancheros who, again, are, you know, uh, Mexican and Indian or Native American people. And he's Japanese. Tatsuya Nakad Nakadai. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you guys are really, like, just against casting, like, Mexicans to play Mexicans, weren't you? Like, what is going on? Well, I think, um, uh, well, like Argento said, he, he basically claimed that he added Japanese characters to his Western scripts to remind the genre of its roots in Japanese cinema. So that's kind of why this guy was there, because I agree with you. I was like, why is, he looks Japanese. What's going on? It turns out, like you said, you know, Tatsuya Nakarai, um, he's an icon in Japanese film. He was the gunman in Yojimbo, 
which I had just watched like a month or two ago, and I was like, I, why do I know him when I'm watching this movie? Um, but it, what's interesting about his character's name is in the in the movie, uh, in the dub and in the subtitles, it's El Fago. And I looked that up on Google Translate, and that means the fire. But Spaghetti Western mm-hmm. Database misspells it, adding an I after the F, so it, they spell it as El Fiego. And when I tried to look that up, it, there was no definition for that. So I think there's just a misspelling error there somewhere. It was confusing, because then isn't Fuego something mean something? I didn't look that one up. but Fuego is Spanish for fire. Okay. Fiego, is, I think, is the... Or, or we're looking at the the Italian translation so it's going to be similar because yeah they're both based in latin well there's no well there's i don't think there's l in italian but el fago when i put el fago in google translate to spanish it came up as the fire also so maybe there's two ways of spelling fire in spain um but well, he in, was, yeah in spanish and italian it would be ill ill you're right Duh, i should have known that yeah so, but I mean, he was awesome. You know, Brett Halsey quoted him as saying, uh, he's about Tatsuya. He said, I've never worked with an actor who's more single mindedly dedicated to his craft. And he was just evil in this movie. I really liked him. Yeah, I, I like, I liked his, uh, his character, Tatsuya. Like, I thought he was really good. Like, he's definitely, uh, he played his role the way, the way he was su- supposed to. You right. Um, it's funny on uh, like you were mentioning Troy McClure as Slappy the Wagon Right. <laughs> um, when you go to click on it, it brings up Troy McClure from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, it's just weird. Now, I, I wanted to get back to Brett Halsey for a second because I, I was actually saying something earlier and I kind of screwed it up. I'm sure I've cut it out already. But um, from the book that I have called Any Gun Can Play, which is about spaghetti westerns, um, it talks about Brett Halsey and it says he arrived in Europe in the early 60s to star in swashbucklers such as Ricardo Freitas' The Seventh Sword in 62. Uh, he played a Texas Ranger in Gianfranco Baldinello's forgettable movie Kill Johnny Ringo in 66. Uh, before finding his niche as a glowering Avenger in two terse episodic westerns, Today It's Me, Tomorrow You, and The Wrath of God. So we may have to check Wrath of God out at some point. Um, but garbed in both films in black, broad-brimmed hat and cape, looking not unlike Franco Nero's Django, acting under the alias Montgomery Ford so that his quote-unquote real name, which itself was a pseudonym, Brett Halsey, wouldn't be solely associated with westerns. Um, He's convincing as a hunter, wholly absorbed in the pursuit of his prey, grim-faced and focused, yet with a hint of dejection in his eyes. That That spark of humanity establishes a connection, however slight, between actor and audience that makes all the difference in films of this kind. And I think they're right in the analysis, because you uh, understand his character more, and it makes a difference in these kind of movies. And I definitely, you know, in the flashback when we see him, he's not a gunslinger to begin with. He's just a regular rancher or something. And then he's thrust into this vengeance mode after the wife is killed. Right, which explains why he spent five years, you know, after, uh, you know, whittling this... uh this piece of wood down into the shape of a gun, using it, you know, to, to learn how to draw and draw quickly and get that, uh, that, um, muscle memory for yeah. 
years just every day all day yeah <laughs> i mean it it makes it makes sense oh yeah you know yeah. especially where you know these guys are coming after him like oh yeah we pff, he was a chump like he was easy to 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 take down like shouldn't be a problem now after he spent you know 5 years in prison and he's like haha i'll show you yeah and so will my friends <laughs> like that scene at the end where you know the again the the guy is advancing on bud spencer and he you know is able to get up and and uh break free of his bonds and a bunch of guys show up with guns and they're like oh crap but then like their friends show up and kill everybody right <laughs> my favorite part uh, of this might have been when they go to uh, grab that one guy and he's the sheriff and he like lets the dude out of prison. He's like, all right, you're sheriff now. Right. The, the drug. Like, I've always wanted to be sheriff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to mention him. That guy's Wade Preston. Uh, and he plays, of course, Sheriff Jeff Milton. He wasn't in a ton of things, but he had an uncredited role in Boot Hill. And then, um, which we covered, so I, I don't know which character he played there, but he was also in Starsky and Hotch and Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries. And he, his last role was that awful 1990 Captain America film. Did you ever get a chance to catch that? I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, it's, it's, you're not missing anything. I, I forget. Matt Salinger, I think, plays Captain America, and, and the Red Skull is Italian instead of German. It's just dreadful. But um, I, what I liked about his character here, it reminded me of George Martin's sheriff character in A Pistol for Ringo, where he's kind of the stereotypical American good guy sheriff, but I thought it worked here. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, I liked his character. And I guess Wade Preston, before he um, went to Europe to star in films there also, he, he was the, played the lead role of Christopher Colt in the TV series Colt 45, which ran for three seasons, uh, in which he pretended to be a traveling gun salesman, but he was really an under, undercover federal agent. So he kind of knew his way around Westerns by the time he did this movie. Yeah, I like the fact that you have folks that are uh, veterans in in not just you know, this particular genre of film. But, like, you know, you, you have guys that, and, and, you know, ladies as well, that have acted in other, in other genres, and they can kind of bring that expertise and different, uh, different life experience, you know, like, um, you know, like we were talking about uh, Tetsuya, like, you know, he's big in Japanese films, but he's able to bring that intensity over to this. And then you have Bud Spencer, who's just like, you guys have any questions, just ask me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, just to quickly go through the rest of the cast here, we've got William Berger, who played the gambler, and uh, I loved his Austin Powers outfit. I thought it was great. Yes. <laughs> um, he was Colt, Francis Colt Moran. He was in a... When I looked him up, he was in a ton of European films, which I... Never heard of, but they all look really cool, so I want to try and check those out if I ever get the chance. Uh, we talked about Tatsuya Nakadai. Uh, Jeff Cameron played Moreno. He was in a whole bunch of spaghetti westerns and peplum films. Um, and then uh, Franco Borelli, uh, also known as Stanley Gordon, was the gunman Bunny Fox. And I think you mentioned him earlier. He was in a bunch of spaghetti westerns and grindhouse movies. Uh, Dana Gia who played, um, I think here she was listed as Diana Madigan. She played Marana Kiawa, who was his wife in the flashback. And uh, she didn't do a lot, but she did a bunch of Grindhouse films. 
And then, of course, as we mentioned, we have Troy McClure as Slappy the Wagon Wright, <laughs> which I, I totally believe that that was a character in the movie. I'm like, huh, I don't remember a Slappy. I mean, we got a bunny, we got a colt, you know, why not a Slappy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you have, uh, when you have, <laughs> when you have, uh, you know, uh, something that can be edited by anybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of the things I have in my notes uh, regards to Bud Spencer, because he's the guy I was kind of focusing on. Like, I know he's not the main character, but he's the guy that I'm focusing on because he's the guy that I'm most familiar with, and he's the guy that I'm most uh, interested in. Right. Uh, first thing I thought of was, so he can catch a bullet but can't fight a guy with a machete. <laughs> uh, like, the guy shot him, and he caught the bullet, Yeah. but then struggled to beat the guy with the machete. Yeah. I noticed that, too. Who then, like, should have killed him, which led me to my next note. Is there anything that can kill Bud Spencer? <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure he's immortal. Well, he survived the bullet to the head, so... Right, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's no, uh, what what can kill him? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, he was awesome. And in fact, that's one of the things when they um, when they brought this over to DVD over in the U.S. Because the Trinity, actually not DVD, but uh, in the release and then later in the DVD releases, um, because of the popularity of the Trinity films. It was marketed as a Bud Spencer movie under the name Today It's Me, Tomorrow It's You. For, um, I think for some of the video and DVD releases, because in the theater it was Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die. So, um, yeah, I mean, Bud Spencer obviously was the huge star in this movie, even though he was a second-tier character. Yeah, I, just, I, I thought that, you know, going into it, I thought that these were going to be kind of like one-note characters, because they didn't get a whole lot of development, you know... Um, Again, it reminded me a bit of, you know, after you said it, it reminded me a bit of uh, The Magnificent Seven, where there's, yeah. it's like, here's a little bit of the, the backstory, and we're going to use, you know, their skills in place of their personality traits. Right, right. So I, I love movies like that, where you pull, pull a team together, each one has a different skill, you know, those are always fun, fun types of storylines, I love those. Yeah, and I, I think that you know these are definitely um, these are definitely some good good characters. Like you can kind of get behind them, and like there's I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate this the best way I can. Like even though there's not a lot of um, character development, you're still rooting for these guys because you get to see enough of what they can do and why they were brought into the fold to begin with. Right. Um, you know, obviously most of them are doing it for money, but like by the end, that's like, oh, we've gone through all this stuff together. Yeah. You know, let's, let's bite our thumbs and drink some blood tea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, as close as, close as what, you know, they didn't quite do that, but you know, it's <laughs> close enough. Well, that's just it. They didn't double-cross each other, which, you know, was a, a cool thing. And, you know, it would have been nice to see more movies with this team together, you know. Because they all survived. I was surprised. I thought at least two of them were going to die. 
Yeah, I thought it was uh, pretty interesting. Like, I thought that, uh, you know, this wasn't the, you know, my favorite of of the films that we've watched, but I thought that it, it did do a good job of, you know, pulling you in, getting you to care about the characters. Um, I will say, though, that getting to see Terrence Hill and how charismatic and fun that he is compared to just, like, stoic and dour uh, Montgomery Ford. Yeah. Just, like... Eh, like... Bud Spencer shouldn't be the guy that is has the most personality in your film. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, because even his even his roles tend to be like a bit of you know a bit of a one note thing where he's always like, "I'm the big strong guy that can't die no matter what you do." <laughs> like stab me, doesn't matter. Shoot me in the face, doesn't matter. Like <laughs> you know, no matter what happens. Like he he gets out of it, and you know, generally it's a chance for him. Like, like we were saying with uh, Lo Meng, like a chance for him to show off his, you know, amazing physical power. Right. And you know, he's always doing. He's throwing guys all over the place, and you know, a bunch of guys jump on top of him, or he's knocking somebody out with a you know single punch. And he does you rip know, that one not... small tree out of the ground to use to defend against Alfago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right after he catches a bullet, so he's yeah. <laughs> again like it's like he's some sort of deity, like maybe not a god, but he's he's godlike, you know, maybe like a demigod, right? Like a Hercules. Yeah, like I can catch bullets and I'm indestructible, but you know, I'm gonna kind of pass that off, <laughs> you know, because he also never gets drunk, no matter how much he drinks, and he drinks a lot. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's funny. I wanted to mention, too, that Kiowa's outfit that we uh, I kind of referenced earlier. There was a scene where I forget if it was him and Bud Spencer. He's walking along with someone, and he's sort of more in shadow than the other character. And it just looked to me like a proto-Batman. There was just something cool and iconic about that outfit. And, yeah, everyone's like, well, it was the same outfit Django wore. But there's a reason for that. It looks cool, you know? Yeah, I can see that. You know, maybe not Batman, maybe more... You know, because Batman was at the at the time this came out. Batman was, you know, Adam West. Um, maybe more of like the Shadow or Zorro. Right, right. I just was thinking of modern Batman, and just sort of made me think of you know if they did an Elseworlds, which they may have, where it's Batman in the old West. That's he'd have to have the pointed ears, but it just had that. It just I got that feeling from it, you know, where you could barely see the whites of his eyes and it just cloaked in darkness. Although his coat was kind of a, a print pattern. It wasn't t- solid black, like his, his suit jacket or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I can... I, I did like his outfit. Yeah. Like, I'm with you. You know, but again, it's... I think I like the Terrence Hill type of, like, gunslinger that we've been getting to see. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. And you I know, w- more more personality, more fun. You know, again, like that's one of the things we're always talking about with the Shaw Brothers films. It's like, oh, this one wasn't that fun. Like we didn't get to see their their playful personalities. And you know, maybe that's, you know, just they're playing different types of characters and you know, these films are made sometimes 10, 15 years apart in different parts of the world and you know, you're telling different stories. 
but there are a lot of parallels between them. Like, again, you know, Bud Spencer and Lo Meng sh always showing off their strength, you know. Right. And that's guys true. That, Go ahead. Uh, I was say guys that should be dead, but somehow manage to fight through devastating injuries, at least until they're no longer needed in the plot. Um, you know, it's, you know, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've started off with, what, Giuliano Gemma, and, um, you know, we kind of went into Terrence Hill. Uh, we did have a little Lee Van Cleef in there, who was kind of more serious and stoic. Um, I think you're, you're going to be surprised when we get to the Clint Eastwood movies too. He's a lot more serious. He's not a, he's not a Terrence Hill in his movies. And I think there's room for both. I think that some of these films can be lighthearted and fun, and then other ones can be gritty, serious, you know, more serious kind of films too because of the, the nature of revenge and all that stuff. So I, I kind of like right. them both. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Like these these uh these movies. This one not so much, but like, you know, we've we've talked about in the past with some of these where like a lot of the especially like the Lee Van Cleef films where you know, it's like, okay, you know, we're facing these overwhelming odds. Let's um let's concoct some elaborate plan in order to defeat all these uh all these, uh, you know, this this legion of bad guys, because there's only a few of us that can that can uh, that can fight. You right. know, we don't have an army; they do. Like, what can we do to kind of even the odds? Is it a Gatling gun? Is it dynamite? Is it, you know, digging trenches everywhere? Like, what can we do to offset their numbers? Because we're pretty great. You know, maybe. You know, we take five, six guys each, but like, you know, there's a thousand guys. So, yeah, what do we do? Which I thought was a cool way in this movie, the way they dealt with them is, you know, it definitely the film didn't quite actually have a spaghetti Western feel sometimes. And like towards the end, it felt kind of like a Euro horror where they're in the woods one by one picking off the bad guys, which I thought was great. Like you said, you know, the bad guys had them in by the numbers. So they had to literally one by one take them out till whittled it down to a, a manageable size, you know. Yeah, and I think that's where Dario Argento's influence came in because he is, if nothing else, you know, a, a, a master of horror. So if he's able to, you know, like inject a little bit of that into, you know, a little bit of the horror element into his western, like that's exactly what is going on. Like he's. He's, you know, you've got these guys doing, um, you know, kind of like unconventional warfare, you know, very similar to uh, like Mel Gibson and the Patriot. Yes. Yeah. You know, where it's it's like this isn't what's normal. Like normal is all of us wearing our brightly colored uniforms and marching down the street, right. you know, 10 across, <laughs> banging drums and playing fifes. You know, letting you know that I'm coming from, you know, four miles away. Right. And it's like, well, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, it's uh, it's definitely uh, something that you would see um, 
you know, from a Dario Argento film. You know, his films are very well written and well directed. So, you know. And like I said, this I mean, is maybe a young the kills weren't. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, maybe the kills weren't quite as graphic. but Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and don't forget, like I said, this is a young Argento. He hasn't quite gotten into his horror films just yet. So he, But you can see the, the seeds being planted, the way he's thinking as a writer, you know? Yeah, like you can definitely see like seeds of stuff that he's got planted that's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I wanted to uh, change topic just for briefly because I didn't want to forget, but you had mentioned the Comancheros, and um, according to Spaghetti Western da- Database, it defines them in this movie as a legion of army deserters and half-breed Indians who are great fighters. Um, now, when I looked up the definition of Comancheros in real life, it says they're 18th and 19th century traders that were based in northern and central New Mexico who made their living by trading with the nomadic Great Plains Indian tribes in the northeastern New Mexico. Uh, I'm sorry, northeast New Mexico, west Texas, and other parts of the southern plains of North America. Comancheros became so named because the Comanches, in whose territory they traded, were considered their best customers. They traded manufactured goods such as tools and cloth, flour, tobacco, and bread for hides, livestock, and slaves from the Comanche. As the Comancheros did not have sufficient access to weapons and gunpowder, there's a disagreement about how much they traded these with the Comanches. So it's kind of interesting, sort of like the um, the Wild Bunch in the last movie we did, or oh, not the last movie, but um, My Name is Nobody. They kind of took a real thing and made it different for the movie. Yeah, I can definitely see, I can definitely see the way that uh, that that point of view there. Um, yeah, I I liked the uh, the fact that you had at least a few named uh, named members of the gang and it wasn't just uh you know El Fago and then you know one one other guy, you know, like right. whoever the second in command was. <laughs> and I'm glad it wasn't uh oh, what's his name? I'm gonna have to look it up. The guy who's in like all the other movies and he plays the same character every single time. Oh yeah, I can't think of it either. <laughs> Sancho Pancho yeah, I yeah. Can't remember his name. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you know who I'm talking about. The guy that we we, we were talking about him a couple weeks ago, and now I'm totally blanking on his name. But like, he's the exact same character in every single movie. Right, uh, right. <laughs> Fernando Sancho. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's like the same dude all the time. Yeah, like <laughs> he's <a> disgusting villain. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh it's nice to see, you know, kind of guys branching out. And I thought El Fago was a great villain. Oh yeah. Like he's definitely one of those guys that's like, ah, oh, he he sucks so much, but it's like like there are certain certain movies and certain stories that when you watch them, you you think, "Oh, well, the hero can definitely kick this guy's ass." Like again, you know, Giuliano Gemma versus Fernando Sancho. Like, pfft. yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, but man. with this, it's like, I don't know. Like, this is a this is a, a professional killer. Like, this is all he does is kill people. And you just learned how to draw a gun in prison with 
a piece of wood that you carved into a revolver. <laughs> like, it's not the same. Right. <laughs> so, like, it at least gives you, you know, this air of, you know, can he do it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that... that uh, and you wouldn't be surprised if he lost. Right. You just have to send immortal Bud Spencer after him. Right. <laughs> But it explains sort of why he had to pull a team together, because he knew he couldn't do it himself, couldn't do it alone. And that sort well, of brings... I mean, you don't go after a, an army by yourself unless you are trained. Like, right. this isn't like a Stallone or Schwarzenegger movie where it's like, <laughs> oh, I fired six bullets and killed 40 guys. <laughs> nice shooting, Chocolate Moose. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that's, um, you know, it, what that brings me back to what I, I put a pin in earlier, which was... When Kiyoma gets out of jail and he goes to the guy at the beginning, for whatever reason, I just assumed that was his dad. And then I thought that Kiyoma had s s stolen that money and the dad just saved it for him and said, okay, take it, you know, do whatever you need to, I guess. But then in the flashback, he says, oh, my dad dies. Turns out he was really rich. We had no idea. And I got all this money. So now when I look back on it, okay, that money was his father's money. But who is the dude that was holding it for him? Did they explain that? Did I just miss that? Or I don't think... I think that it was supposed to be understood that it was just like a friend or, or like, you know, oh, okay. somebody he was close to. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously he recognized him from a distance when he had the, the rifle set on him. But Yeah, and he's, he seemed a little nervous when he was talking to uh, Bill Kiowa. And he's just yeah. like, yeah, I got all your money. It's all right here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that was interesting. And that flashback was really cool. I like that they did it in black and white, which I was a little nervous. I thought it was going to get really brutal, and I don't know if anything was cut from it or or what, but I, I was uh, I was happy with what they showed us, and they didn't really need to show us any more of what happened there, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, one of those things where it's just, it's such a trope of you know, Westerns that, you know, maybe they thought, I don't need, I'm a first time filmmaker. I don't need to explain this. You know, it's just, you know, there's always a guy that's like, oh, I held on to your MacGuffin for you while you were, <laughs> while, while you were in prison. It's like, do you have my thing? Like, there's always a thing. It's like, oh, I just got out of prison. I've been there 11 years. And it's like, oh, I've been keeping your stuff safe for you. Yeah. <laughs> here's the, here's your satchel. All right. <laughs> That's where the gold is. Or, like, you know, he's like the one guy who's like, yeah, I've known where the gold is for 11 years while you were in prison, and I've been waiting for you the whole time. Let's go dig it up. Oh, no, I've been shot. Oh, I'm right. dead. <laughs> oh, I've been shot, and someone, or, like, I've been shot, and someone took the map, and now there's a race to get there. Well, yeah. I better put together a team, because... <laughs> Black Bart's got my, my treasure map, but luckily I remember exactly where it is because I've thought of nothing else. Right. It's under a giant W. <laughs> yeah, Black Bart, my former partner. Oh, that's like... He uh, double-crossed me. It's like Henry Fonda's buddy in uh, My Name is Nobody. When he goes in and the guy's already dying, <laughs> he tells him all about it. Yeah, yeah, like that's, it's one of those like few things or it's like, oh, this is my partner or this is a guy I became friends with while I was in prison and he got out six months before me and he went and took my treasure. Yeah. Now I have to go get it back. 
Oh man, there was a lot of little cool things in this too, though. Like when Colt flings the knife under the table and pins the other guy's card to the chair. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Uh, I know it's definitely one of those things that I think movie makers today could. You know, I think they do kind of steal that, but I think that they could also. Uh, they do it in a different way that. You think of Ant Man, you know. Yeah. Cause I'm I'm still on my other point. It's like, oh, I know you just got out of jail, and you were my you were my, uh, you know, Michael Pena was his, uh, yeah, cellmate in prison. And I was like, oh, I got this job for you because I know like this is what you're good at, and like this guy told me, and he told you know his friend and their friends, and um, you know, so I think it's still being used. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, you know, and El Fago only uses his sword at the very beginning and the very end, which I thought was interesting. I was surprised he didn't use it. You know, see, I think he was a strong enough villain that, like, they had they were able to, you know, they don't need to show him like every five minutes. You don't need to like just, like, just the the mention of his name. Like that's that's another one of those tropes in westerns where it's like, oh, you said his name. Nobody says his name. Why? Ooh, because he might hear you. You know, it's like right. <laughs> like I'm in I'm in Dodge City and he's in Santa Fe, and then like five minutes later the guy walks in. He, I heard you've been talking about me. Yeah, you've been you've been talking about me. It's like what? I thought you were in Santa Fe. <laughs> I was till I heard my name on the wind. <laughs> it's like a droopy cartoon. <laughs> How the hell did you get here? It's like. <laughs> 1,500 miles, and we only have horses and trains. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm a bad guy. Oh, okay, then. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Pat, final thoughts on uh, Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die. I mean, it's it's a fun movie. It, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I wouldn't say it's, like, at the bottom. Like, it's definitely a, a very stereotypical um, Western um, you know, based on all the stuff that we've been talking about, I liked the uh, like the horror elements. You know, because I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, and the fact that Dario Argento is a, is you know one of the writers on the screenplay. So it's like, yeah, all right, all right, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like I'm gonna use these uh, different tactics to kind of pick guys off one by one, and kind of you know, you have this like undead monster that you know just cannot be killed in Bud Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there was there was some uh some good revenge stuff, uh you know, which a, a a western should have. There's always good revenge in a western. Um Oh yeah. You know, he's he's pretty uh you know, again, Bud Halsey slash Montgomery Ford as Bill Kiowa is uh he was good. I mean he's no He's no Lee Van Cleef or even Giuliano Gemma, and he's certainly not Terrence Hill. Um, and he's no Montgomery Wood. Yeah. Montgomery Ford, but not Montgomery Wood. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I dug it, and, uh, you know, if there were, like, more in this series, I would watch more about, about these characters. I agree. I agree. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, again, I, I totally agree with your assessment of the movie. It's not, you know, going to hit anyone, either of our uh, top 10 list or any top 20, at least. Um, 
I think much like uh, the um, Rebel Intruders, the, both these films were kind of mediocre, but uh, they had a lot of elements that were enjoyable. This was probably a little more enjoyable and coherent than Rebel Intruders. It didn't seem like different directors were doing... In fact, there was a lot of cool shots, especially when they were in tight quarters, like inside a room and stuff. They, I thought the camera work was really good in this. And then um, by, by it having that Euro horror feel as well, it definitely um, uh, it wasn't as cliched as it could have been. You know, they they took the whole revenge thing where this one guy, his wife was killed, now he's going to take revenge, and they kind of twisted it by having him form the team to exact his revenge. So I thought that was kind of cool. You know, overall, I found it entertaining and engaging, and, you know, I recommend it if you're looking for a, a fun spaghetti western to pass the time with. This is not a bad one. Yeah, I, I mean, it... It wasn't like an unpleasant movie. Like I definitely thought it was it was good. It had some good beats. You know, it definitely had a lot of the western tropes that you've come to expect. You know, yeah. you know, we've we've bounced around as far as time frames go. Like sometimes it's in the seventies, sometimes it's in the you know, mid sixties. You know, we've done mid sixties to mid seventies over and over again and it's a lot of them are very, very similar, but it's the way the story is told and the way the the actors, you know, are able yeah. to portray their different characters because uh, the stories are, are very similar but yeah I thought this one was a good one um, again I was uh, kind of hoping that Bunny Fox would be like a badass lady but uh, <laughs> you know oh man that's so funny yeah and I think um, you know in the assessment of both these two films I think we're going to see a lot different spaghetti westerns all across the, the gamut um, I am a little concerned with the uh, the Venom movies. You know, we're going to do the next Venom film. We're kind of getting down to the last few of them, and I'm a little concerned that maybe they're starting to fall apart. I don't really know much about, you know, any of their films beyond the ones we've covered so far. So hopefully the next one we cover, which um, I don't know off the top of my head which one that's going to be, will will be better. Uh, than the one we covered today, and um, maybe this one they just you know they were cramming so many movies into 1980 that it just kind of got the short shrift. So, so that's it, folks. That's all the time we have for the East meets the West today. You can check out more episodes as well as our sister show, Then Is Now podcast, in which we discuss all the cool stuff you may have missed out on at our website, HavenPodcasts.com. And, folks, don't forget the East Meets the West as part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so don't forget to check out all the great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can find me at throwdownthursdaypodcast.com for all the latest news and articles for, uh, you know, the stuff that we're doing that doesn't quite make it into the show. Uh, You can find me every Thursday on Throwdown Thursday on Spotify, iTunes, Google, all the the places you can find podcasts. And uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, come hang out with us on the uh, the different groups, and you can find us on YouTube. Throwdown Thursday podcast. Uh, I've got some live trailer reactions. I've got you know a few live shows. Uh, I've been producing another show for for some folks. But uh, yeah, there's tons of fun stuff. And uh, if you get a chance on the, uh, I'm not sure exactly when this show is going to air, but the video will be up uh, on the 17th. Uh, I will be joined by powerful Brandon, and we will be riffing on a couple of movies. We're going to be doing 
uh, Birdemic, Shock and Terror, as well as uh, Backstroke of the West, The Third Gathers. Nice. So join us for that. Is and, that August uh, 13th? That'll be uh, July 17th. Oh, July 17th. Okay. But it'll, you know, even if this show comes out after July 17th, it's going to be up on the YouTube channel, so you can check it out there. Excellent. Excellent. And folks, please send us your thoughts on today's episode at the East Meets the West 42 at gmail.com. And you can check out our website, as I mentioned, havenpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One, where you'll find all our podcasts there, plus other fun stuff. And be sure not only to hit the subscribe button, but also share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And make sure to go wherever you download your podcast and leave us a great review so more people can find the show. Plus, you know, show us that you that you really do love us. Excellent. Excellent. I agree. Uh, join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. The East Meets the West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. <laughs>